all the way back together here. You can find your seat and we'll spend some more time uh, connecting, fellowshipping afterwards. As always, if you um, have food, we'd love to eat together as a church afterwards. If you didn't bring food, you are welcome to grab food and then come back and uh, be God's people around the table. Uh, it's good to be together. Good to uh, come together on this wonderful Sunday. Thank you, Shoot family, for being here and leading us in worship. God's kindness to us. I'm excited to hear about the testimony of God's greater family, quite frankly, and what God is doing, uh, not just here and not just there, but really over there, right? And we've seen that in the book of Acts. Um, that he is uh, continuing to move and be on the move. As many of you know, uh, the Shuits uh, played a significant role in the life of Windsor Community Church before uh, being called to Sheridan, Wyoming, of all places, where they planted um, Sheridan Bible Church, as Chris said, um, with a very similar timeline as this church. And so in some uh, regards, we feel like twins. Um, and I have a special affinity for that metaphor. Um, with my kids. So grateful to have you here, eager to hear a little bit later about what God is doing in your corner of the earth. So, God is on the move. And He's empowering His people through His Spirit, equipped with His message to reach His people. It's not only the overt theme of the book of Acts, which we kicked off uh, in September, but by God's grace and leading and empowerment, it is the theme of the Christian life as individuals respond to the proclamation of the gospel. As individuals proclaim the reality of Jesus' life, death, and glorious resurrection, and then they respond in repentance and faith and are ushered into God's eternal kingdom, one individual at a time. And it started there in Jerusalem. And then it began to boil into Judea and Samaria. And it has now spilled out into the ends of the earth. God's plan A to lift high the name of his son Jesus, the Christ, bringing reconciliation to his wayward creation. God's people. His church is growing and reaching people. And we've been tracing that campaign through the pages of Acts. And if you have your Bibles with me, go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 18, which is where we will be tonight. It's towards the tail end of Paul's second missionary journey. Pastor Pat spoke uh, two weeks ago uh, about God's ministry of the gospel to Berea and the power of the word. And then last week, we looked at Paul in Athens, who claimed and proclaimed the one true God, right? Among a very religious but lost people. And tonight, before Paul travels back to Antioch, his sending church, God has one more stop along the road. And it's a place called Corinth. It's about 46 miles directly west of Athens, a day by sea or a couple days by foot. And the sermon title for this evening is The Birth of a Church. 
And the roadmap for tonight is to simply read through the text as we always do and consider three main ideas that mark the theme of the birth of the church. And we want to spend some time reflecting on those themes and the implications and the applications for us here in a place called really Colorado. So let's get to the text, shall we? Acts chapter 18, starting in verse 1. If you'd follow along as I read. After this, Paul left Athens and he went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, and he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked. And they were tent makers by trade, and he reasoned in the synagogues every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and he said to them, Your blood be on your own hand, heads. I am innocent. For now on I go to the Gentiles. And he left there, and he went to the house of a man named Titius Justice, excuse me, <clears throat> a worshiper of God. His house was next to the synagogue. Christmas, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul believe and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word among them. But when Galeo was proconsul of Acadia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Galeo said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them out of the tribunal. And they seized Sothenius, the ruler of the synagogue, and they beat him in front of the tribunal. But Galeo paid no attention to any of this. Paul moves on from Athens to the city of Corinth. Corinth's a strategic trading city on the coastline of modern-day Greece with substantial trade routes from Italy, Spain, and North Africa. Corinth, like most cities, had a history of bang and bust. Reaching its golden age several hundred years earlier, it was all but demolished from the map in 146 BC when a revolt against Rome broke out and Rome leveled the city 
and its inhabitants. About a hundred years later, Julius Caesar of Rome renamed the city, causing many Roman freemen to take residence there. Because of its strategic location to trade, it quickly flourished, and by the time Paul enters Corinth, it was estimated to have some 200,000 people dwelling there. And at the center of all of that urban life was a god named Aphrodite, the goddess of love. And as one commentator put it, under the guise of religion, the people engaged in unrestricted immorality. Throughout the Mediterranean world, the expression to Corinthianize to live morally became a byword. As Daryl Bach puts it, it was the Las Vegas of its time. Enter the Apostle Paul. Verse 2. In the midst of all of that, in the midst of all of these people, Paul finds Aquila and his wife Priscilla, who share Paul's trade track, verse 3, who were recently kicked out of Rome because of Roman response to revolt surrounding Jews and Jesus. And Paul stays with them. And the text seems to imply that Paul works through the week, and then on the Sabbath, every Sabbath, he goes and he persuades the Jews and the God-fearers that meet there that the Christ was Jesus. This is the first mark that we see in these verses of the birth of a church. It takes purpose. It's not only by haphazard, aimless pursuit that Paul, Silas, Timothy, Barnabas, and many others engage in God's plan to reach people. There was and always has been purpose, God's purpose, from the beginning pages of Scripture, and man's purposefulness, yet oftentimes found to be faithless. The account of Acts paints this picture clearly. We've seen it time and again. God purpose joining his creation, man, and he invites us towards his eternal purpose to redeem his people back to himself. And we've seen that in this text, and we know that about the Apostle Paul. If ever there was a purposeful guy, his name might be Paul. I want to draw our attention to a couple of small things, things that might be missed as we consider the book of Acts and maybe things that we miss as we think about the Apostle Paul. Two things that are small and have to do with purpose. The first one is purpose in the midst of real life. And the second is purpose over time. It's easy to read the account of Paul, especially in the book of Acts, which is an action-packed summary and draw incorrect conclusions concerning Paul or his ministry. We might see the significant ministry that he had and chalk most of that up to being a missionary who isn't really burdened by the demands of real life. 
We might read over several verses, even verses like these, that represent significant periods of time, cultivating relationships and trust, serving and teaching high mountaintops and low valleys of life. And think it just came a little easier for a guy named Paul. Or at least it came a little faster. A careful read of this text, as well as other places in Acts, and Paul's letter paint a more realistic picture of Paul, who is burdened with the uh, concept of work for the sake of his means, which we see here in verse 3, working with Aquila and Priscilla, and who labored with people for long since of time in this particular text in Corinth for a year and a half, which we see in verse 11. It gives me greater respect for the purposefulness that it took for individuals, individuals like Paul, that God used to birth and build his church. It's convicting for me as I think about purpose in my own life. And I think about the primary obstacles that I struggle with as it relates to God's purpose for me. Personalize that for a moment. What obstacles can you identify in your own life that hinder your purposefulness here at Redemption Church? If you're like me, one phrase quickly comes to mind. And it's being busy. Anybody relate to that? About a decade ago, I was sitting in a church in Fort Collins next to Emily, and a pastor said this. You always go to bed tired. That is for sure. The question is, why? In other words, being busy isn't really the chief problem. The problem is what you are being busy with. What you busy yourself with in your life. What captivates my time and my energy? And how does that intersect your and my purpose for life? That's the real question. To believe that Paul just had more time, or wasn't that busy, or that others, people, aren't as busy as you are, or that they have a massive amount of free time, or that a different stage of life might be less busy, although that's somewhat true. There are seasons of life. Most of that is a simple lie. It might be one of the greatest tricks that evil one has to sideline God's people from their purpose. Just wait until you have more time. We were created to do, I believe, that whole part of it. Go study the book of Genesis. The call of God to his people, even before the fall, was to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over every living thing. That's a call to action. To go get busy. 
I might say. So the question ought principally be, how are you spending your time? What are you busying your life with? In the midst of starting a church, in the midst of a Christian life that aligns itself with God's will and plan for the life of the believer, it takes purpose. Go have purpose. And let that purposefulness inform what you and I do and how you busy yourself. Go to bed tired. But do so having done so in line with your purpose. Which begs the practical question. What purpose did Paul have? What purpose do you and I have? And what does that have to do with the birth of a church? Verse 5. When Silas and Timothy arrive, they, they eventually get there. Remember, Paul's waiting for them in Athens. They don't show up, so he moves from Athens to Corinth, and then these guys finally show up. Paul was occupied with the word testifying to the Jews that Christ was Jesus. The second mark of a birth of a church is proclamation. Paul's purpose for coming and being in Corinth was to bring the truth that Jesus was the Christ to individuals. That Jesus was the long-awaited Son of God. The promised Messiah, the promised King, the promised Priest, and the promised Prophet who accomplished eternal life through His life, death, and His glorious resurrection. And the text tells us that he reasoned and he persuaded with them, verse 4. And as he did that, they opposed and they reviled him, verse 6. Not really a surprise. We think about Acts. We've seen this pattern often. As the kingdom of God goes out, it expands and it encounters Opposition. And this opposition comes from the Jewish people, a constant theme in the book of Acts, sadly. The people who God had laid a great and beautiful foundation for the gospel, some respond, and others reject. And they do so zealously. The gospel proclamation is good news to some as individuals respond by repentance and faith. But the gospel proclamation is also foolishness and acts as salt in the wound to others. Paul is yet committed, even in the midst of significant fear. It's what he writes about in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. He has fear preaching the gospel of Jesus as the Christ. 
And yet he's so desirous that people would taste and see that Jesus is the Lord, that when rejected, he shook out his garments, verse 6, and leaving the synagogue, he continued his purpose of proclamation elsewhere. I think it's easy to miss the extreme tension and fear that Paul felt in the midst of this time in Corinth in these verses. Some of that has to do uh, with the fact that it's not directly sin. But it's addressed through the account of Paul's uh, vision, most likely of Jesus in verse 9 and verse 10. The second reason that might be easy to miss it is because that vision is written several verses after you think it should be. As an example, right after Paul is reviled and prior to taking the gospel to the Gentiles. In the midst of purpose and proclamation, Paul is found to be fearful. Paul's words in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 3 are these. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. In the times of purpose and proclamation, God is still needed to provide, which is the final mark of a new church. It's God's gracious provision. This provision was granted to Paul through a vision, one that has a threefold command followed by a threefold promise, a sermon amongst itself. For another time. Do not be afraid. Go on speaking and do not be silent. Those are the three commandments. Followed by three profound promises. I am with you. We've heard that one before. Praise God. No one will attack and harm you. Why? I have many in this city who are my people. What follows in verses 11 through 17, which is unpacked for us in 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Paul's letters back to this growing and multiplying church, is purpose expressed, expressed in proclamation empowered by God's gracious provision to Paul. All of the promises given by God to Paul come true, if you know anything about the Corinthians church. Because our God is faithful to his words. So how does the birth of a church that is marked by purpose, proclamation, and provision intersect our lives here in Greeley, Colorado? You're a part of our small group ministries, which we call redemption groups, or have listened to our Reflect and Expect series we did a couple weeks ago. You know that we have spent time, we are spending time helping all of us unite under one passion to see God mobilize this church through discipleship 
to impact this city with the gospel of Jesus. And to do that, we need to know our purpose. It's a very simple purpose. It's the purpose of being a disciple. The disciple of Jesus. And for us, we define that as somebody who worships Jesus and makes him known. A disciple of Jesus has love and affection and adoration for King Jesus and is marked by abiding in the Word and in prayer and with His people. That is what we mean by a worshiper of Jesus. A disciple is also one that makes Him known. That we are here on this earth to lift high the name of Jesus, manifesting God's great character putting it on display for all to see. And we do that principally through two ways. In our own lives, as God grows us in Christ's likeness, and in the lives of others, that God uses you, as God uses us, to reach people and help people grow as a disciple of Jesus. That is our purpose. Being a disciple of Jesus, one who worships Jesus, and one who makes him known. And it begins with each one of us personalizing that individually. Practically, that means overlaying the idea of being a disciple of Jesus onto our lives and what we do, where we spend our time, who we spend it with, how we spend our money, what we prioritize, and what we value. Only through deep-seated worship of Jesus, our affection of Him, will His church ever be mobilized to proclaim Him to the watching world. Only through growing as a disciple of Jesus personally will we ever be passionate about God's plan to reach and grow others. And only through God's gracious provision will any of that Will any of that faithfulness account for anything? Praise God for that. That the results of his great mission rest upon his great shoulders alone. For we believe that God has some great things to do in this city. His eternal glory and the joy of His people. Because we believe, like this text says, that He has many in this city who are His people. In closing, I want to turn our attention to the note cards in the back that you walked by as you entered tonight. Many of you already have one or both of these and are deep diving into what it means to be a disciple here at Redemption Church. If you haven't grabbed one of these, I would encourage you to do so. Uh, grab a couple of them. Slide them into your Bible. They're helpful bookmarks. Um, one side, you will see what we believe and what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. One that worships Jesus and makes him known in the key areas that we believe mark those two pursuits. 
as we desire to grow in this pursuit together, we encourage you to dive into the book of Galatians. With us over the last uh, uh, several days, month of June, and pray for the songs, which is on the other side of that card. We want to be people that press one another towards God's word and towards prayer and to do that together. On the discipleship side, uh, at the bottom are a couple questions. Uh, I would encourage you to continue to ask those questions of yourself this week. And then with grace and with great expectation, ask those of others as you encounter them throughout the week. And share what God is doing in your life. And be desirous to know what he's doing in other people's lives. Amen. If you haven't jumped in, there is no time like the present to do so in the book of Galatians. It's sweet. It's been good. Trust that you will be blessed as we explore what it looks like to be a disciple of our great King Jesus. And we can do that together. The marks of a, the birth of a church in this text, purpose, proclamation, and God's gracious provision. Praise his name for what he's doing. Amen.